You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast and incomprehensibly it is now 2021. I think that might even be the first time I've said that out loud. No, I think I would normally say 2021, which is why it seems strange to my mouth. I'm a little bit rusty. Forgive me. We've had several weeks off, but we've got some cracking content coming up. Um, Just later this week, I'm speaking to Russell Kane. We have a fantastic interview with Tom Neenan in the can. And this is the fabulous Jordan Brooks. So what can I tell you about Jordan? He is the winner and current holder three years later of the Edinburgh Comedy Award due to the fact that there have been no further Edinburgh festivals. And we will talk. Oh, I tell you what, in the insider's stuff, we'll find out about Jordan's feelings about that, because for someone who is as kind of, uh, let's not say iconoclastic, but what he really excels at is he really observes the observers. And what you'll find out throughout this interview is that he has an incredible knack for not just willful contrarianism, but for stepping back and seeing what's actually going on. Lots of us observe what's going on in our lives. He kind of observes himself observing the what you see what I mean? Oh, I've already tripped myself up. Listen, I'm not going to pretend to you that this one isn't a bit pretentious. I encourage Jordan to be pretentious and I take all of the credit for that. Um, this is some deep, deep com here. So I'd even go so far as to say if this is your first try of the podcast, maybe open with something a bit lighter. Um, there will be in the Insiders Club stuff, we're going to find out a bit more about uh, uh, Jordan's feelings about uh, winning the Comedy Award. We're going to find out a bit more about uh, the sort of the cultural race to expose more and more weakness and suffering over which comedy seems currently to obsess. Uh, and we are going to talk to Jordan about Making Bleed, which was the show he did um, in which everyone in the audience wore those silent disco headphones, which was an incredible piece of comedy slash theatre. And by his own own account as you'll you'll see in the insiders uh, club extra bits uh, incredibly fucking difficult oh that reminds me uh, not just uh, uh, warnings for swearing there is some stuff we talk about i'm not going to get into exactly what it is but let's regard this as having a generalized content warning if you are the sort of person who likes to take advantage of content warnings then allow me to give you a generalized one we're going to get into some not deep into but we're going to touch on some slightly difficult stuff and uh, let's just call that a generalized content warning to be on your toes that's fair i think that's fair uh, all of the extra bits you can get from comedianscomedian.com slash insiders along with the recent q a uh, private insiders q a with james acaster it's a lot of fun there as well um so with that in mind here's jordan brooks this is a good one i've got it i'll do a proper here's jordan brooks in a second i'm i just love this conversation it's uh pretty intense in parts and it's really um it's really honest and he's also very good at framing like he doesn't play the victim and he really frames the difficult elements of his life as not him create or he's aware at least that in describing his life he's framing a narrative of it listen there's there's we've just got to dive in here's jordan brooks 
I went up to the I went up to the Edinburgh Fringe in maybe two thousand and eight for the first time, and I went on my own. Uh, and I wasn't I hadn't started comedy at this point. I just really liked comedy, and I'd, I'd been doing some. I've been making these little videos on YouTube of this character. And that was my sort of that was my only kind of foray into performance. And I'd I'd written some scripts, and I, I'd kind of I kind of thought I'm going to do I'm going to do some comedy. I'm going to be like a comedy script writer or something. But I didn't really know it. I didn't know in what capacity, and I didn't know you know I didn't know how how I'd even go about doing that. But I went to the fringe, and I in like in like I was there for like three days on my own, and it was raining the whole time, and I just ran from show to show to show, and I saw Hans Taven, uh, yeah. this Dutch comic. And I remember that being, that was the lasting impression coming away thinking, well, that was mental and I don't know what it was that I watched. And I remember just being so excited by the feelings it brought out in me and the, the confusion and the, the room splitting. You know, there's people, there's one person sat one, you know, one side of me giggling hysterically and there's another person tutting out of sheer angry confusion. Mm. And I remember thinking, that's perfect. That's sort of what you what you want and it and it but he was coming at it from like there was its it had its own internal logic even the maddest stuff had its own you know it was it was built from somewhere that you could kind of understand but also couldn't and part of the joy was in trying to figure out just what what it was was being said if anything and i so i yeah i thought that's really fun and then but i also really loved mainstream comedy i really loved you know i really like michael mcintyre I, I i know i know <laughs> i know you might think that's a joke but it's i i really like you know i really like louis ck i really liked a lot of um like jack d was one of my favorite comics growing up and so i liked comedy i liked the formula of comedy and i i think when i started i thought well how can what can i do that that is uh for me is not necessarily deconstructing the form because I, I that's not that's not interesting to me or audiences i think but what is what is interesting is finding a way of making stand up work for me as a form and what i what i realized early on was that i would be writing stuff according to this sort of persona that i guess i had kind of so so initially yeah there were these odd bits and pieces there were these strange things like odd set pieces and perhaps less formulaic bits but i was also trying to squeeze myself into a persona of like the sort of nerdy socially awkward outsider and i hit a real brick wall because i'd get about 10 minutes in so i, I there was this competition called the welsh unsigned stand-up award which um matt reese won one year oh. taylor glenn uh, charlie webster also won it simon emmanuel like some really good people and really now it was a nice sort of unifying it was our only competition it was our only sort of you know it was like our sort of our, our kind of world cup yeah. and i won the award in 2012 uh so it was like two years in and then part of the part of the uh, the prize was to perform at the Glee Club. You get a paid weekend at the Glee Club, which at the time is like inc incredible to think yeah, of now, yeah, considering yeah. how hard it is. Considering they won't book me now, um, they gave me a they, they gave me a paid slot, and the, the slot was fifteen minutes. The competition was eight to ten minutes slots, <laughs> and so after eight to ten minutes, all I had. So basically, I I sort of entered the competition in twenty eleven, and it was like I'd been going for like three months, four months, or something. And it was mad stuff, and it was all very like, 
almost like so, so, so Charlie kept telling me it's like it's almost like one-liners, but the one-liners are observational, and the one-liners are like harsh truths and stuff. And it's sort of mm. it's kind of like a monologue. And this is when Kiri Pritchard McLean saw me as well. We were at the same heat, and she you know vouched for me loads after that, and and sort mm. of got me you know got me gigs in Manchester and stuff. Um, but they felt like it was too nuts. It's like a year on, I went in sort of, I guess, like honing it a bit more in, yeah, in, in, in the direction of a, of a fixed persona. But after the eight to 10 minutes of this kind of awkward, I'm unconfident with women sort of thing, I didn't know where else to go because I didn't, I felt like, all right, that may be like one facet of who I am. But it also feels like it's not at all. I was like, but I'm I'm pretty confident in social situations, and I've got a girlfriend. What am I? Why am I pretending that these things aren't the case? And so after the eight to ten minutes, all I had left was this was this set piece where um, I played, uh, I wrestled, I invited an invisible man onto the stage, and he would perform, and I would sit on the side of the stage watching and reacting to him. And then I'd get really frustrated with him. Then I'd um, then I'd call him my absent father. Then we'd wrestle. Then we'd fuck. Then I would try and bury the body. And I and I did it at the Glee Club at this paid weekend. And I'd be <laughs> and I had my top off. And I'd be dragging this this invisible corpse through the crowd, getting people up to help me carry the corpse. And uh, it was such a gear shift that people were like angry. And I don't even think they were angry because of the bit. They were just angry because of the sharp turn (laughs) that it took to think, oh, we know who this guy is. And then suddenly, no, we don't. Um, To the point where when when they announced at the end of the night, they'd go, give it up for all your acts, such and such. Jordan Brooks, everyone booed. Um, But I remember coming away thinking, well, that's better. That's <laughs> that is better than than the I'm I'm quiet at parties bullshit that I was peddling. So um I kind of realized that I perhaps and I think I think I think I had I I was trying to fit my persona into what I thought people wanted. Within, you know, I I think this is why competitions can be a little bit um, not dangerous, but they can certainly shape your act in a way that ultimately isn't necessarily helpful because it stifles the nuance. It stif- it take, you know, when you do competitions and you're trying to strip things down to a short spot to fit everything in, you take away all of the fun little details. You take away all the quirks and you try and streamline it and you end up being, you know, trying to present yourself as neatly and as cleanly as possible. And for me, that just wasn't reflective of who I was and it wasn't, it's not reflective of who, who people are. So I think, I think, but I mean, I think, I think the kind of early noughties stand up, the kind of live at the Apollo, Michael McIntyre's roadshow did a real number on people's development because it made them think that comedy had to be a particular way. And you see it now that I think that's starting to ebb away. And there there were a lot of acts that I'd meet and still kind of meet where they go, I don't feel like I'm being funny on like my funny self on stage. And then you see them and you go, well, yeah, because you're talking in these you're you you're adopting these forms that that are so familiar to us that you think stand up has to has to slot mm-hmm. into but it's not what you think is funny and that was and i think that was sort of what i realized was i have to make it as complicated as possible in terms of presenting a you know presenting myself in all of my contradictions and um but also doing stuff that would make me laugh um yeah I think that I mean that's a, that's a really that's really well put. That is typically articulate. I think um, I was going to ask what you know. Why did you start off selling the line of bullshit? 
and I, I get I get what you're saying about the apology. Is it is it that you were as subject to the idea of this is what a comedian is supposed to do as anyone else? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So you did sure. that for a bit, and and I, I guess your version of doing that would have still been nuanced and intelligent and it was still on the alternative side yeah yeah right but it was but it was definitely sort of with an eye to making sure that i didn't alienate audiences but i do really think it helped me as i say in the sort of development because because it it, it's still that is still my you know i still want to connect to as many people as possible as i say i think that is that to me is a is a far is is a greater challenge than coming out and just doing something unrelentingly and alienatingly insane and enjoying the three people in the room that get it. Uh, that's t- to me, that's too easy. Oh, that's great. That's such a good answer. I'm, uh, I don't have a jumping off point from that because you really answered that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of wrestling with this idea of you as not wrestling with it, but the idea of you as kind of mainstream, given that, in your most recent show, which was I've Got Nothing, which I saw at the oh, ARG yeah. Festival, that fucking show, before it even went to Edinburgh and when everyone else got on board, <laughs> that it is it has genuine risk and you're playing games and you're playing with the idea of games and it's not... It's like... Um, it, it's it's intelligent and there's stuff to work out, but it isn't alienating to people who, mm-hmm. who aren't there yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Period. Yeah, totally. You know? Like there's oh there's a puzzle to unravel here and there's I can feel smart I can feel clever with myself for getting mm. it early and all the you know that kind of stuff but then even then you're just wrong footing me all over the place out maneuvering the audience and stuff, um. That type of thing, you said earlier on the Glee mm. won't book you. Presumably there are other people who won't book you and there are other like have you got an idea of the sort of the TV opportunities which other people with your success would maybe have open to them that you don't feel are open to you? I don't... Or do you feel know. like... Like, do you know what I mean? Someone, someone, in, someone in the Facebook group said, a bit, or on Twitter recently, said something about Dictionary Corner mm. on 8 out of 10 cats. And they, their point was like, why is it always... Why isn't the person on Dictionary Corner funny? And of course, the, the answer is, you know, it's a yeah. different tone and it's a different opportunity for different sorts of acts to what you, the yeah, tweeter, yeah. are used to. But do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, do you have a sense of like, oh, by, by going down this road... And by being committed to the weirdness and the intelligence and doing what it is that I like and what you're doing, what it is that you that you find funny. Have you closed it or do you feel you've closed it? I think about it a lot, but I don't know really because. uh, I I think I think I have. For some people, I have perhaps a reputation for being too alternative um so like some the, the, i guess there are clubs that won't that will be too scared to book me because they they might consider me too much of a potential room splitter i would obviously argue that that rarely happens you know i i actually don't die that often but i have the impression i think of someone who probably is either you either get it or you don't actually most people do get it but people want to feel like they're in on the joke and it's and it's cool and some some people don't get it and that's kind of part of the appeal actually most people get it um, there are some clubs, yeah, there's, there was a club, I won't name it, but I was, I, I was, uh, emailing back and forth with some small club in like South London and I, and I was like, can I come to, and this is after I'd won the award and I was like, can I come do a, a slot? And they went, yeah, yeah. Can you do, um, could you come and just do like a five minute tryout spot just before we, 
we test whether because they're quite middle class. And I just stopped replying because I was like, well, fuck you then. I don't, yeah. I don't know what to to say to you. You know, uh, either book me or don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. If you're if you're that worried, then I'm sorry. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna venture down to sitting them. Yeah. Oops. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, do I think it it has limited my opportunities? Honestly, I don't know because I think that the the sort of TV industry or the kind of you know the the sort of higher up people they still do want to to champion new acts and different acts and so there's an eagerness sure there's a, there's a hunger to like get me on things but I do think there is a hesitance because they don't quite know how my act will translate to but what we're talking about here is like panel shows right that's all we're talking about because that's the only shows that are available to people. Um, I think I, I think I am at the bottom of the list of priority. You've got you know you've got your sort of straight white cis men who are dependable and they know what they're getting, and then you've got me. I'm not going to supersede those men, and I'm certainly not going to be prioritised yeah. over anyone who doesn't fit into that category. So. I, I'm kind of. I, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think it's. I'm not. I'm not too sort of. I do think. Oh, if if I was asked to do these shows, of course I would do them. But I also don't think that I would necessarily do a better job than anyone else. So, of why, why bother putting me on? And do you have you done Apollo? No. Why did you think I've done Apollo? Well, I was just. I was. Well, I'm. Trying, I'm making sure that I don't go. I think you'd be great on Apollo, and that you replied. I'll yeah, thanks, mate. Apollo. I died on my ass. I tweeted about <laughs> and, and it. I exposed a <laughs> hole in my research. And I could really see you on that stage, but at the same time, I can't see the decision being made. That's to put exactly you on that stage. that's exactly it. I think I I can see how it would work. I can see how actually God, I can see how actually work. it would be fine. Um, but it is just about yeah, it's just about persuading people to to take that punt. I mean, they did it with Spencer Jones. Um, they did it with Nick Helm, although I, I, I guess he didn't have a great experience. Not that you would know from the final edit, um, unless sure. you pour over the footage like I did. And you can see some people in the background leaving. Um, <laughs> but generally, I think, I think yeah, people are... I mean, it's yeah, that's, te- that's televised stand-up. Like it's, again, it comes back to that prejudging what an audience will like and won't like. And I've, I've never thought I won't have... I wouldn't have some broader appeal that exceeds people's expectations. Let's look, let's have a look through your back catalogue because the things that you've done, I think, I I don't think I've seen every show of yours. I saw the first one. I remember Mm -hmm. the sweeping one. And I saw the, I think the next one of yours I saw was the, the one in the awful, awful fringe Mm -hmm. venue where like for the first week of the festival, you were in the worst room imaginable. Body of work. Like, um, body of work and that was like god i I had a lot of respect for you that was one of those big heroic mike bubbin style comedy things where you go oh this guy's committing to it despite (laughs) this being absolutely unplayable yeah yeah (laughs) that show was um i've kind of i've been sort of refreshing my memory by looking back at some of the reviews of that show uh which is sort of arguably pointless but you know they remind me of some of the things i thought at the time and i love the game of announcing yourself Mm, at the beginning of the show and I loved. I can think of some of the component parts of that show. I think I saw someone describe it as, "Oh, it's a, it's a. The show is a pastiche, or, or the show turns out to be a pastiche of worthy shows where 
comedians, you know, trade off the death of mm. a relative. And I remember reading that and think like this morning and thinking, oh, was it? I don't know if I. Got I don't think it is. I mean, it, it certainly. It, how how disingenuous am I being when I say that? It, I had definitely seen shows of that type, and I thought this is yep. bullshit. You're manipulating us into getting a particular response. At the time, I was I was really obsessed with and couldn't stop rewatching um, the Ricky Gervais series Derek because I was okay. so fascinated by how kind of manipulative it was, by how much it was just button pushing. It was just sort of announcing sad okay, things yeah. at you, universally sad things, and expecting us to to respond. You know, it was it was like it was like sort of watching a series of of sort of sad emojis. You know, there was nothing. It's very like can watch it on your phone on the on the commute to work. Don't need to think about it. Here's someone crying. Oh no, an old person's died. Oh, I remember when an old person in my life died. Now I'm crying on the tube. It just felt so so easy. And I was like, but that isn't what grief is. That isn't what our response should be. Why, why are you making us want to feel that thing? And I was just really fascinated by that. I was also interested in how um, generally how we, we sort of have to, uh, how hard we have to work to get someone's sympathy. Not in comedy, not on stage, but just in general in life. How we have to sell a story, we have to sell our trauma, we have to sell our tragedy in order for people to to, to kind of feel something for us. And um, I thought that's a really fun tool of manipulation. Uh, but it was also it was also because there were shows about mental health that I felt were again very direct, very like I have depression, and here's my experience of depression, and. I kept thinking, but I, you know, I, I think I know what my sort of you know, the state of my mental health is. I'm starting to understand it. I'm, you know, st- it's still very much like unknown. Why would I come out and talk in such concrete terms? Why not come out and reflect that uncertainty, reflect the panic? Um, and so, yeah, I think it was like, I was just really interested in why stand up still felt like such a juvenile form when it came to it's like the, the what it wanted from an audience and just how simple and basic it, it it can be at times there's so much telling and not showing there's so much telling and i thought well why not just show people what you experience or you know sweep people into that into that world make them experience these things and then and then kind of reveal what it was about or hint at what it was about. So that it was about trying to get the strike the right balance so that I wasn't stopping at 50 minutes and going, hey, guys, so what you've just been watching is a reflection of uh, generalized anxiety <laughs> disorder. You know, it was more you, you, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't shortchanging the audience and just and just giving them a big middle finger. So the the, the show was ostensibly about it was me trying to do a show about my nan and talk about her story, her life. And then that being sabotaged and me kind of leading the audience down the garden path in terms of them thinking that that's it's about dementia and that I'm trying to reflect the experience of having dementia. Turns out that that's just a manipulative tool to get people to connect with my real problem, which is that, you know, I have OCD and I wanted to make sure and initially I was going to leave it for ages, making the audience think that I was talking about my nan having dementia. But in previews, I just couldn't go through with it because obviously you have to factor in well people have actually legitimately had experiences that are going to be 
you know, this is going to be triggering for them and you have to respect that. And so as it sort of went on, the show became the period between me saying my nan had dementia and this is what it was about, or at least implying it was it was about, and the reveal that it wasn't became seconds, mere seconds, because I, I couldn't deal with the idea of really upsetting people. Um, so it was fun, it was interesting to like, I guess, it's, it's also a sort of cake and eat it show where you're kind of, you're kind of, taking the piss out of these the things that you are also using to to get a response out of the yes. audience yeah 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 well the phrase cake and eat it had uh, yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah you get you get to employ those yeah. tactics and then go but aha but you still get to ride high from the uh from yeah yeah, yeah totally tactics. and i think that's sort of the point is like it's about that yeah i mean i guess i guess like a lot of my act is about self-expression and about the this the line between sincerity and insincerity and how how hard it is to to put it into words what you feel and then let alone get people to connect with it and how we do often have to go down these very very sort of narrow routes a la Ricky Gervais's Derek to get people to emote um and so that was like I just I was really interested in, in that something I think you're really good at is um is not following the most obvious take on something like I think that's what part of why I really enjoy uh, your Twitter uh, output. You're really good at like, um, and maybe we should get into Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's get into Doge. <laughs> like you're you um, you're really good at, and ultimately an element of it is simply observational comedy. Except you're really good at taking a step back and observing the people who are trying to observe the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's it, like it's a bit meta. Like you tweeted the other day, frantically scanning the Boris photo for where I could Photoshop Bernie into tears forming in my eyes, jaw clenched, feeling connected yet appallingly alone. <laughs> like the fucking hell, that, that you've just nailed that feeling. Like I, like not that I've ever desperately, you know, burst into tears whilst trying to form a meme, but. The idea of that connected yet appallingly alone, trying to join in with a thing, that's such a kind of, I don't know if it's a meta observation. Or the meta-ness of it is probably just because it's an observation about the people who are going through that. But I mean, mm. it's just an observation ultimately, but it's it's just distance slightly. Would you agree? Yeah, I think for sure. I definitely have felt that distance and that that sort of, that distance that I felt from the world is something that I felt really, you know, in my sort of late adolescence, early 20s, I was very much detached and removed. And I felt like I was really on the sidelines. And it made me very kind of a bit snide and a bit, a bit, yeah, a bit removed and a bit hard to connect with, I think. Um, and so that part of me, I think, is still kind of there i still i still sort of have that but it's it's also a kind of willful contrarianism of like of going no fuck you i'm going to do something i'm going to do the opposite of this thing um but yeah i don't know if it's sort of yeah yeah i'm not sure if it is meta uh cuz and again i mean this is this is sort of what i think sometimes reviews of my stand up are focus too much on which is the meta element and the postmodern element and the oh he's reflecting on stand-up itself it's like i'm not it that's like a byproduct that's like that's like what just i guess that's what it turns out to look like but actually the pursuit for me is to um do do something that feels more truthful you know you do see stand-ups who go who sort of take the piss out of Michael McIntyre or take the piss out of observational comedy. And it's so boring. It's so boring. It's so self-regarding. I think 
more what what my intention is is to do something that for me feels more of a truthful expression of what it means to be a person or what it means for me to be me it just happens to perhaps not fit within the confines but i think that's everyone right that's all that's all stand up is that we're we're all trying to squeeze ourselves into a into a sort of little boxes and um it, it isn't it isn't real it's very inauthentic and there was definitely a period around the sort of yeah the kind of early noughties or late late early noughties where stand up did feel very uh regimented and did feel very inauthentic mm. and you know there'd be these sort of like stock phrases that people would would use um where they'd sort of go well then this person said the funniest thing i've ever heard or you know my dad is the angriest man alive here's some examples and it it felt, uh, yeah, once you start, and even if the audience aren't necessarily acknowledging that consciously, I think once they start to hear all of this stuff, it just it just makes you switch off ever so slightly um, and feel a slight disconnect from the act. So that, that for me was like, I guess I was kind of pushing against that. More than sta- more than more than stand up, but like the expression within st- stand up, I feel like I've talked myself into saying actually it is quite meta and self regarding. But it's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean maybe a little bit. Yeah, it looks like you're taking the piss out of stand up because what you're taking the piss out of is the self regard, the sort of crystallized self regard of stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is I, quite meta. <laughs> I, it is quite meta, I guess. But there's that, but the meta ness isn't the point. It's not like you're you're no. doing it in order to be meta. No, 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 no. I'm not doing it for comedy fans. I'm doing it because I think that I, I think that what I'm doing is more authentic. It's it's, yes, it's, it's, it's the, the pursuit of authenticity. And that's the that's the distance I was talking about. Like yeah. rather than take rather than do an impression of a of a comedian that might seem jaded or hack, what you're interested in is kind of a step removed of that and go, why do we all do those impressions? What's it really about? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and also it's just it's just about, yeah, it's just about doing something different. It's just about doing something that excites me and something that I would want to watch. And, you know, as I say, it's about making myself laugh, really. Just on, on authenticity, can you think of times when you have been inauthentic? Have you caught yourself being inauthentic? Oh, all the time. On stage? Yeah, totally. All the time. All the time. And I know you personally, so let's say on stage. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely like, I mean, that, that's part of the fascination, isn't it? Of the, of the sort of where is the dividing line? When, where were we? Can we ever be sincere? Is what, you know, when you say something, it immediately is constructed. Um, it, on stage, even more so. So for me, it's like, yeah, there are there are times when I feel like I'm being inauthentic, but for me, it's not about going. Well, that's a bad thing that needs to be removed. That's a well. Why do I feel it inauthentic at that point? What is it that I said that made me feel like I wasn't being me? What is me? How do I how do I build that into the show then? How do I structure it around the uncertainties so that even the inauthenticity, even the insincerities, feel like they are a deliberate device in a way? So it's just kind of like sucking everything in, in, into the orbit, you know? Yes, that's great. I mean, what's fascinating about that is the, um, I think in comedy, the main, the main job, no, the, the main route to finding funny things is that the problems are the material, right? The funny mm. thing, the problems are the material. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that means this object won't respond in the way it wants to, or I don't fit into the world. And for yeah. you, I think the problem from which you derive the most material is precisely what you've just described, which is, I feel something about this thing I've just said. Why do I do that? That's the problem, isn't it? So yeah. let's explore that. Let's find the material in that yeah, problem. Because that's that, that, that's reflective of a problem of self-expression or that, that, you know, hitting a brick wall is the thing. 
And there's always funny in failure. There's always funny in failure. I would rather watch someone fail to execute something they intend to do rather than succeed in terms of comedy. And it's about building that into the show. So you sometimes see it with certain shows will have like a blurb that they've written in advance because they've decided, well, this show is going to be about this thing. Yeah. And they haven't worked out how to make it funny because maybe it isn't actually funny. Maybe the audience don't care about your mum being ill or whatever. And you have to work... And you, So you go, well, audience is indifference. Maybe that's built into the way that I tell that story. And so it's about leaving it open. And so every every sort of blurb I've written for a show, is I've kept, tried to keep it as open as possible so that even down to the last minute before the Edinburgh Fringe or even during it, I'm still moving things around and changing it because it is evolving in response to how much the audience will let me get away with. Uh, how I am learning to express myself or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just about building all of the responses into into the final product um, because you can have a very fixed idea of what you want to do, but that doesn't mean the audience are going to want it. And if the audience don't want it, tough shit. You're going to have to adapt. So this is Jordan. There are about 35 more minutes of this, if you can cope with it, and I certainly can. I This is this is peak ComCom as far as I'm concerned. All available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, including his mixed feelings about winning the Comedy Award and the inside story of the creative process behind Bleed. And on that subject, you can actually get hold of Bleed for digital download as well as I got nothing. I made notes, right? After I saw, I, I alluded to it, but you, you'll, you won't hear the edit because Nathan's excellent. Um, but I actually read, Jordan, the notes that I'd made when I saw I've Got Nothing at the ARG Festival and uh, because I was so, so blown away and I was frantically going, remember that bit, remember that bit, remember that bit. Um, if you would like to enjoy that show yourself, go to Jordan's website, which is jordanbrookscomedy.com and uh, you can, yes, you can download Bleed, you can download I've Got Nothing, there's tons of clips on there. So if you are as much of a fan slash obsessive of his work as I am, then uh, do go there and you can follow him at George Brooks on Twitter. God damn it, I'm only just remembering now we didn't even get into the fun he had when he got blue ticked and started changing his name on Twitter and saying all sorts of fun things. Not to worry, another time. Um, that's all of that. Uh, what am I touting? Normally this is for me to tell you about gigs and stuff. Precious few of them, but there is one coming up. I'll tell you when that is. It's uh, in March. It's I'm doing 1pm on Saturday, the 20th of March. It's an online gig for Catherine Bohart's brilliant gigless show. Uh, she is doing a, uh, a comedy festival, which probably is... It's, it's probably called the Gigless Comedy Festival or something like that. I should know, but I don't. But you can find out all about that by following the Twitter of this show, at ComComPod. But it is 1pm, March the 20th, or just, you've got the details. There's a thing. It's me doing a preview. There's loads of great people doing a preview. Um, and Catherine Bohart is uh, is organising it. So put all of those in Google and find it. You know, you can cope with that, I'm sure. Um that's uh, so there's that to tell you about and then the other things are just uh, comedyinsights.com and virtualofficeparty.co.uk which are the fun things I'm continuing to do even though it isn't Christmas um, unique concepts left right and centre keeping me not just happily afloat but also kind of mad and obsessed in a way that I'm, uh, I'm quite enjoying speaking of mad and obsessed let's get back to this chat with Jordan Brooks If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I want to talk about, with reference to that show and, and, and more broadly, I want to talk about the idea of vulnerability. Because you're someone who, simply by taking the risks on stage that you take, you make yourself vulnerable to the stuff not working, to the stuff being too personal, to the stuff being, like, I imagine there's a kind of family risk when you're kind of miming graphically sexual things with members of your family. There's presumably you need to have an eggy conversation with a parent at some point. Maybe you don't. You know, like this, but we'll get maybe to touch on that in a minute. But that idea of risk, of... Mm. Of no, that idea of vulnerability, of putting yourself in a position where you can be judged unfavorably by audiences, other people, family, friends, you know, those kind of things. That's really key to what you do, I think, making yourself vulnerable. It's hard to imagine a show of yours in which you didn't make yourself vulnerable somehow. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it is, it is, yeah, no, you're right, I do. <laughs> I do do that actually. Um yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a hard navigation, right? It's like I you know, I I've only really been doing I mean I've been doing this for 10 years. I've done five shows. It's a drop in the ocean in terms of development and so I'm still learning what my own boundaries are and what I am comfortable with putting on stage or what I'm comfortable with saying in like on podcasts like this, you know, th- yeah. th- there's a sort of, you're constantly learning what is and isn't healthy for you. Um, there are times, there are times when I have, I have put my, I've made, I've done, t- I've, it's been too raw and too vulnerable and I've been badly stung by it. Um, so it's about yeah, it is about finding the the balance, and it it is hard sometimes to accept that oh, people will watch this and fucking hate me. They will fucking hate me for this. They'll hate me for saying what I've said. They'll hate me for the way that I've approached it. They'll hate the way I made them feel uncomfortable. And there are times when that when that does bother me for sure. But um, 
I think as time goes on, I do sort of toughen up a little bit. And it's, it's, it's also about setting the boundary in my head where I go, well, that's not me. You know, it's, 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 a, it's what I'm doing on stage. And also it is deliberately, it, it, I, I'm, I'm aware it's going to piss people off. I'm aware it's going to wind people up and push the buttons. So I can't be surprised if, it, if I actually get that result. Um, but it's been, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of, uh, yeah, I'm still figuring it out really. I'm still figuring out what my, what my own boundaries are in terms of sort of family members. I mean, they sort of get it. I mean, my, you know, my, my, I'm quite fortunate that my, my mum, um, comes from a sort of theatery back. I mean, my nan was an actor. Um, my granddad worked at the BBC. And so, you know, my mum grew up in a very arty kind of world and, and my dad is um, very, you know, sort of artistically minded. He was very briefly an actor. He was in, uh, he was in Brookside, like the first three episodes of Brookside. And he's, a, you know, a good sort of, yeah. So they both, they both sort of weren't discouraging. And I think I, I sometimes, you can sometimes see when parents have really done a number on their kids by dissuading them from pursuing a career that perhaps isn't going to be fruitful, and you know, at least financially. And it's going to be full of ups and downs. I feel very fortunate that that they haven't ever said you shouldn't do this, um, and I do think that support has allowed me to perhaps feel like I can take the take a sort of risk. Um, they sort of do. They do get it. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think my, you know, obviously my parents. I mean, my. I mean, my dad's never seen me, but my my mum, has has seen every show I've done. And I think over time has come to accept that this is just what I do. And not all of it's going to be for her, but actually a lot of it is. A lot of it she really likes and a lot of it she really enjoys. And, it, you know, is, isn't, um, I, think, I think the most recent show I did, the, the, um, I've Got Nothing, was, was, was the one that upset her the most um, because it felt like a real sort of bellow into the void and I think she, obviously, she knows where I've come from. You know, she knows that it's taken me a long time to get to a place where I would even leave my bedroom, let alone step on stage. So there's a mix of sort of pride that only she can really know and, and have and also worry because if I say something that seems a little bit too vulnerable or too raw, she will think it's, um, you know, a, a sort of worrying sign. But I think generally she's very... She's very pleased and very proud, and and can see how it works. Can see how it's 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 working for me. So so her almost in that kind of step back way again. Her concern in watching you do that show is less to do with the very funny bits where you uh, kind of act out attempting to seduce her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you, which one you know an outsider might think, well, how's his mum going to feel about that when she sees the work? And I, it's funny, very I hard now for me to hear the word cool without thinking of you going cool, cool, cool like cool, trying, cool, <laughs> trying to crack cool. on yeah, your yeah, mum yeah. once she's hovering. I mean, I mean, you know, during this pandemic, I've had to move back with her. How how awkward <laughs> do you think it is? I never thought I'd have to do this. Standing in the kitchen with her, thinking, "Yep, yeah, this is where I imagined I'd be standing when as I did this." <laughs> <laughs> but it's it like her concern for you is less to do with those those apparently outrageous bits, yeah. and more to do with her seeing you making yourself vulnerable yeah for sure for sure i think the individual bits she's not too bothered about because she understands that it's a device and also she's not watching no she's not watching me she's not watching her son on stage she's watching her son perform she's watching a persona that is all right it's built up out of kind of cherry-picked 
aspects of me, I guess, or the worst parts of me or the most anxious parts of me and then put together. But it's also made up of other people. It's also made up of little flexes of, you know, little things that people have said that are quite vulnerable or things that I've observed in people that I think are are kind of sweet or weird and, and just kind of put them in. So she knows she's watching a performance, but I think the, the the more vulnerable moments, for sure, she can see her son. She'll never not see her son saying, you know, um, provocatively direct things about his mental health. And do, I want to come back to persona and that kind of like that that sort of collage aspect of of the persona. I know you as a socially confident very articulate funny person and i when you like i don't want to sort of skate over you were saying about not being able to leave your room mm-hmm. so with kind of the caveats that we you know spoke about before at the beginning of this about not wanting to sort of push you into anywhere awkward for you i haven't listened to the podcast that you did with rich wilson fabulous rich um that my wife told me about did you know this um what what's what's that about like in as much as you want to kind of touch on it for now like what what was the what was the inability to leave your room about um it was a sort of it was a sort of snowball of of things really i just i'd had um you know like most people i had a pretty shitty time of it as a teenager i had really bad skin and uh, it's very difficult to talk about this stuff because you feel like it's sort of you're telling a story you know you're telling it you're selling a narrative of yourself and again it's it's that thing of being like i have to be a victim here of circumstance in order for you to sympathize with me or to like me or whatever you know i, I was a bit of an obnoxious prick i think i was difficult to deal with at times particularly my friends when they go well why is this guy being an asshole and obviously looking back you go well because he was deeply <laughs> insecure but mm. at the time you just go I don't know how to handle this this guy. So sometimes I'd find that, like, you know, all of my friends had hung out without me and stuff like that. And um, it just sort of slowly I became a bit more removed and detached. And then I and then I, I got really heavily into smoking weed and drinking and then stopped going to college, uh, dropped out, and then started again, went to a different college. That's where I met Charlie Webster. And I started to sort of rebuild a bit and I cut my previous friends out because they'd, um, they, yeah, they just were. I just didn't feel like they were my friends anymore, and hadn't been for for a long time. And um, but then, yeah, I really turned in on myself and became very. I was very obsessed with like writing. I was like, I'm going to be the reclusive writer type, you know. And I grew my hair out, and um, and I was just writing every day, all day, and it became really, really obsessional. And I would. Um, do some pretty dark things, which looking back is mad to think now, but I'd like, if I stood up from my computer, as in got bored of writing and would move away, I'd like punch myself in the face or like pinch myself or scratch myself. And I'd put signs up on my wall saying, don't leave your room, you know, all this stuff. I became really like, really fiercely disciplined in a way that was, um, you know, very unhealthy, I guess. Um, and the book I was writing was shit as well, so it wasn't worth it. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I just started to withdraw more and more. And then obviously my friends, that, well, yeah, so Charlie went off to university and I didn't. And I sort of stayed, lagged behind. And and I really, yeah, I just became very, very obsessional, very, like, very obsessed with my looks and the way I looked. I'd constantly look at the mirror. I'd constantly sort of, you know, I'd get up and look at myself in the mirror and I'd try and work out if I was attractive or not. 
Sometimes I'd take the mirror out into the garden, into the outside, so I could judge it by natural light. Sometimes I'd get up and I'd count my spots. I'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then I'd sit back down and then I'd get back up and I'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I'd just keep counting them. Um, and so I became really in my own head. Um, and then it started, it wasn't like a bad place to be. I wasn't sort of, you know, I was having a kind of nice time in my head. I was, you know, I was very, my imagination would run wild and I was trying to write stuff and it felt like, I didn't feel like I was on the wrong path. It felt like I, this is just who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Um, and then it got, and then it just kind of went sour. You know, I, I started to, my brain sort of rebelled against me and I started to feel not safe in my own head at all. And the kind of obsessional, you know, being obsessed with productivity became obsessed with dark stuff or, you know, committing horrible acts and not being able, and then being so shocked by where that had come from, mm. that that would become the obsession. <clears throat> and so then I, I decided, okay, I'm going to have to go to university. I'm going to have to get out and do something because I'm, you know, something's really wrong here. And I went to uni and I, I went to Newport and I, I did English for two years and then slowly slipped away and it it I started to really I mean then at that point I still didn't really know really didn't understand OCD I didn't still didn't understand what it was but I was starting to get a kind of idea of it um I'd been to see a therapist I'd been to doctors I'd talked to them about all this stuff and they sort of you know led me down that route um but then I I had to drop out of uni and then went back and did animation and finished the degree, finished, and, and sort of, I think then, then that was when I started to kind of build a life for myself. I, I lost my virginity, so then I, you know, I felt a lot more confident then, um, but I was like 24 at this point. And so it was a sort of slow climb into normality, but from a place of where previously I'd been so removed, so kind of like snide, you know, so, so as I said earlier, like so on the sidelines, so un, so critical, so hypercritical. Um, and I think I just, I kind of loosened up as I, as, as I went along. So the last sort of 10 years, excuse me, <clears throat> have been me becoming what I felt like, a, you know, as a normal person. But it's taken, it's taken years and it's taken you know, it's taken being on meds, it's taken exercising regularly, making good choices and learning to live with a lot of it as well, just learning to get on with it. Um, but it did sort of make me feel like a a victim. You know, it made me feel like a real victim and, and someone who had had a lot of things happen to them. And it took me a while to to not feel like the, the victim of something and to feel like... Uh, because I, I I think we, it's a, it's a it's an interesting time that we're in where we we do we are sort of obsessed with victimhood and assigning victimhood, and I and I do think it's helpful in some ways, and in other ways I think it closes us off from acknowledging our own active participation in things, and our own responsibility, and I definitely think that that it, that sort of victimhood was so entrenched in me that it's been it's been hard for me to acknowledge that. I have the capacity to be a bit of a dick and, and that's okay. And actually that's just part of being a human being and not something to be like beating yourself up with and ruminating on and over and over. So there's still sort of, there's still a kind of, still a bit of a fallout in terms of the way that my brain functions, but I'm definitely better, definitely in a, in a far better place than I, than I ever thought was conceivable, certainly back then. 
I was reading something about intrusive thoughts recently and about how, because I, I, I don't know if I have intrusive thoughts, but I think the fact that I wonder if I do means I probably do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where yeah. you go, oh, you know, we never know how anyone else sees the world. And one of the things that I found was so like, it really just, I felt like, oh, oh, that's a weight off my shoulders, is the idea, as posited in this book, that um, that the fact that you are recognising the awfulness of a negative thought that you're having, like, you know, the, a, a notion about whatever it is, some sort of, and I'm guarding myself here by not exposing it, you know, but like the notion of mm. doing something horrible to someone that you love, the fact that you recognise that makes you feel horrible is is part of like why you shouldn't worry about it too much. Because yeah. if, if you have that thought and don't recognise that it's horrible, maybe then it's time to be a bit more concerned. Yeah. That, that kind of thing really struck me like, oh God, that's a good... I don't know what the word is, a, a, not a mantra, but some sort of an elegant little thought that makes you go, oh, yes, the fact of that mm. means it's OK. Yeah, for sure. W were there any kind of similar things on that kind of journey back to yourself, which it seems to have been so successful that I didn't know any of it and I've known you socially for a while and I've seen your work as well, you know, which alludes to some of those things, mm. but not in a way that plays that kind of victimhood thing and says, well, it's, you know, it's about me. Well, even, so well, even were... with the sort of way that I've outlined my story there, it feels like it's, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying, I, I don't want you to think that I'm presenting myself as a victim it's just it's just circumstantial isn't it you know it's just what happens um yeah but it does it does contribute to the way to, to i guess sort of the way that I, I i have you know i am um it is it is there um what was your question sorry i've just so, i'm just, so I'm just suddenly very preoccupied with not looking like i'm trying to lead people into thinking i'm a I don't, I, don't think, I don't think you are at all. I think you've you've taken an admirable distance from those things and described in very sort of functional kind of terms. Then this happened and I dealt with it like this. And, you know, I think oh, that's okay. one of the that idea of taking responsibility for one's own thought process. Like I, I always think of it with, with my own kind of psychology. I think of it in my school. I hated school. Mm. And for years I blamed it for doing things to me and making me see the world in a particular mm. way. And then a few years ago, I suddenly had this revelation that, oh, this kid that sat next to me in a lot of class or someone that I knew and who has a similar well you know a very different take on life he didn't mind it at all mm. happiest days of his life and I'm like well we were in the same room how was that do you know what I mean and, and you recognizing oh I need to take a bit of responsibility for the lessons that I learned from things a thing yeah. happened and I learned a particular thing from it and I'm responsible for that it's like a kind of um uh it, it's one of those things it's like you know uh you are who you love and not who loves you back. It's one of those yeah. things. You go, oh, oh, that's a that's a, a huge perspective shift that makes a big difference. I'm For just wondering sure. in in your piecing back together of yourself from those pretty dark times, not to not to kind of write them all off as you know. I, I don't know where you are right now. You seem in a in a happier place. Um, happier place is a little trite, but there it is. Um, were there particular idioms or ideas or mantras that that occurred to you in that same sort of way that you that you could share do you know what i mean like as someone who seems to have pulled themselves back from the brink mm. quite successfully maybe one of those things is about taking responsibility maybe one of those things is about having an artistic outlet that you didn't have at that time yeah for sure i think something that i when i first went to therapy so i went to therapy when i was 23 24 and i saw this guy for like six weeks before i then went back to uni and um, I, I always remember him saying, "Thoughts aren't facts. Thoughts yeah. aren't facts." And it's such an obvious thing, and it's so, but it's so easily forgotten when you're caught up. 
Um, and yeah, what, what you said about uh, if you're worrying about something, then you're probably fine. I think I think is broadly true. Um, if you're worrying about this stuff, you're so self-protective that you're not. There's no way you would do any of the things that you're worried about doing. And in fact, the fact that you have pointed it out, you know, it's like, it's like we've got a sort of stream of thoughts and some of them are mad, some of them are incidental, some of them are trivial. But when like a mad thought occurs, some of us, some people, fish that out and go, what is that? And interrogate it forensically. They don't understand why their brain would think, why would that occur to me? What does that say about who I am as a person? And then they can't let it go. They can't put it back in the stream. And I think it's, uh, there's, there's sort of, I think there's, there's a bit of science behind it in terms of chemicals in the brain, but I wouldn't want to say, I wouldn't want to say because I don't know. But there, there is, there is, I think there is some science in terms of like, it's, it's, it's a chemical imbalance that makes us unable to let go, you know, and, and actually there's something about ruminating on this thing and the ritual of that and the going over and over and over that actually generates a chemical that is absent in us mm -hmm. which is why i think mm -hmm. meds have really helped because i still have the impulse to go down this path i still get those thoughts but i they just don't bother me as much but i think it's also because i have built up a stronger sense of who i am and that's just that's just through getting older that's just through yeah having a creative outlook that's just through doing a lot of work and reflection and also building and this is the thing that i'm because i mean you know i've gone back to therapy um so i was in therapy for sort of yeah for a few weeks 10 years ago and I've gone back to well to, to someone new and it's genuinely been life-saving you know because I was in a bad place and I really didn't know what to do um so I felt like I had to I had to go but it's been really it's been really interesting in terms of identifying the the time in my life when I felt very secure in myself very secure in my world and how that was slowly, that slowly ebbed away. That slowly felt like it was being poisoned by myself. And the work at the moment <clears throat> is to get back to that place where I feel like I am secure in my own world. And that means setting boundaries. That means not confessing all. That means not saying everything to everyone always. And so that does, that does extend to my act and what I choose to put on stage and that's not to say I'm shutting down and going mainstream, baby, but there is a there is a sort of there's more of a mindful approach to what I am putting out there and a greater amount of control and how much that that reflects having your own privacy, having your own private world. And it's definitely, you know, it informs the way that you approach relationships or what, you know, people re approach relationships where a lot of, you know, if you're insecure in your own world, you latch yourself onto someone else's world and you seek the, the, that, you know, you can't have your own private, you, you don't have your own private space. So you just sort of go into someone else's or you build one with, with someone else. And I've definitely had that impulse, you know, since I sort of, since I first had my kind of first serious relationship, I've not been single for extended periods because I think of that, that sort of, that lack of being able to be alone with yourself. In my untrained cod psychologist archetypal story smeller, kind of in, in that kind of with that wearing that hat, when you were talking earlier on about your feelings of vulnerability and feelings of distress at your skin 
and the fact that you felt ugly. And you were talking about that. And I wonder whether there is a, um, a response to that, a sort of a triumphant, uh, a, a, almost um, an appropriation of those feelings, a reappropriation of those feelings in when you are being deliberately grotesque on stage. In the same way that comics, people say, you know, you become a comedian to control the way you are laughed at. Mm -hmm. Is there a parallel there whereby you are controlled, you are controlling the, your, your attractiveness? Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, I used to have a line in, I can't remember what show, but I think I cut it where I said something like, I keep moving my face because if I stop, you'll see how ugly I am. And it, uh, wasn't funny so i didn't keep it in but, but there was something interesting in the fact of just keep moving like a shark you know just keep sort of keep distracting them so it's definitely fed into the way that i that i perform for sure it's definitely it's definitely in my act i mean in in i've got nothing there's a bit where i talk about my looks and because it it, it it was a thing that I thought. Well, no. I mean, this is this is one of the things where I thought. Well, no one's to, not men aren't saying this on stage. They're not saying I think I'm ugly, and it defines so much of my life. That I thought. Well, why not put it on stage and why not sit with that vulnerability and yeah, as you say, own it and be with it and sit with it. Um, and also the kind of. I mean, that show was was full of lots of. Um, ambivalence and 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 contradictions you know there was a sort of it was upbeat but it was it was downbeat it was sort of i was kind of feeling very um suicidal but i was also very buoyed in in some ways and i was happy i was sad you know it was it was structureless and also structured all these things and i think it sort of played into that as well going well i think i'm ugly yet look how confident i am i'm confidently telling you this thing i'm looking you in the eyes and i'm telling you all of the the things that people have said about my looks over the years that I have catalogued and never forgotten, but I'm doing it in pub. I'm doing it to a room full of a hundred people. Um, so it made sort of sense with the, in terms of the show, but it's, yeah, I guess it was a sense of ownership of, of like, um, yeah, yeah. Basically I, I agree with you. I didn't see I've got nothing at Edinburgh. Um, because I was busy swanking around having courted early. Um, at the, the end bit in I've Got Nothing at ARG was the game where you kept walking off and coming back when we clapped. Mm. Yeah, was yeah. that the end in the show? Was that the final end? It was, it was an end. So that was, um, that, was, that was how I was originally going to end the show. And then I did, it, I did another preview and it... Uh, it just the audience did not know if it was over or not, because it was it was in Two North Down in in London. It's in this sort of room where you know there's nowhere to go. If you're off the stage, you're just standing with the audience, and so I would say I would pretend I pretended so often that it was over that when I actually stepped down and started putting my shoes back on and putting my coat on and my bag to go, the audience are still sat there looking at me, thinking it's part of the show. And I remember thinking that's so fucking funny, and the the sense of what's real and what's not real was just really, I, yeah, I was just really fascinated by. So, so I put that in, and so no, the show doesn't end like that. The show ends seemingly like that at about 40, 45, 50 minutes. But then I cut. So, what in Edinburgh, I would wait for uh, a number of people to leave, and then I would come back out and say, "All right, let's crack on," and I just carry on and do ten more minutes to like half the audience. Um, now, obviously, I, I like it, it would how, how many people would leave would be according to how many people were preempting it, how many people believed it, 
how many and how and how much I could hold my nerve. Some days I couldn't hold my nerve at all, and I would like I'd let two or three people go, and then I'd be like, oh no 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 no. Um, some days a third or half the audience would go. Magnificent, and then they try and come back in as well. And some of them got really angry as well. There was, um, oh, you wouldn't let them back in? No, I wouldn't let them back in. Fuck them, show's over for you. Um, there was one, there was one bit which couldn't have gone more perfectly where there was, there was a, there was a couple, there was a a man and a woman and their son on the front row. And I directed a lot of the the seducing my mum stuff to them, made them feel super uncomfortable. Um, I mean, they were loving it, obviously. And then um, on the on the fake ending, the dad left and just left the the mum and the and the son. And I sat down in front of them and went, "You're welcome." <laughs> <laughs> You're free to do as you please, my friends. Andrew Frain asks. Um, it's a long question. It's basically, uh, well, here we go. Be interested to hear about the process of creating something like I've Got Nothing, which gives the impression of being improvised. Even Slapdash was in fact super tight. I saw it twice in Edinburgh for enjoyment and comparison. So just, I guess the question there is how tight was the structure and how much was, how much were you deliberately giving the impression of it being loose when actually it was A to B to C? It's really hard to know because it, it, the intention, the the original intention was to keep the show super super loose. Um, yeah, it really. When I saw that thing, it really looked like you'd written it because you got nothing. Yeah, you genuinely were like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah, and the idea was to just go and go. Oh, look, I've, if, yeah, I, I have to say from the outside, it felt like if you're not going to give me the award for bleed, fuck you. I'm just going to turn up and do whatever. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, it's, that well, that, that's kind of true. I mean, each show, each show is a reaction to the previous show, and it, you know, I mean, in my own sort of way that amuses me and no one else. And each show is a sort of reflection of where I am in the year. I think you know, it's almost like every. Every show is like a sort of journal that I've then torn up and I'm sort of spending an hour dancing in the confetti of it. So it comes out in these sort of weird ways. It's weirdly expressed or indirectly expressed, but there's truth. There's little bits. There's little bits that are true. Um, so, yeah, it definitely felt like a reaction to that. But um, some some days the shows would be, would be different. There'd be moments. Some days it was kind of dependent on the audience. Sometimes it was dependent on whether I could be bothered to go off road sometimes I just wasn't in the mood so I would just so eventually it kind of solidified as it, as it went on it solidified into more of a structure than it was originally intended but it, yeah it was hard because it, it, it I went to Edinburgh thinking well this show is not finished and it needs to it needs work but then I just didn't work on it and then and then and then I won the award and I was like you gotta be fucking kidding me half of this is shit but <laughs> There was obviously something in it that that felt loose, and fl- so I didn't want to rock the boat too much. I didn't want to start correcting it if people were enjoying it. So it, it, yeah, it had moments of spontaneity, and it's still every show there would be something new and different. Um, it would just, I guess, like how different would be dependent on audience and and me, the vibe in the room, I guess. Matt Smith asked, how did you learn to cope with those excruciating silences? You know the ones, the ones when someone in the crowd really isn't getting it. Well, I guess the question is there, do you cope with them? And if you do cope with them, how did you learn? I love them. I mean, I <laughs> I don't mind them. I, I, don't see the, I don't see them as excruciating necessarily. There's definitely been gigs, particularly previews early on, where, you know, if you get, I mean, I'm sure you know this, when you if you get it wrong, you put a few, a, too many 
um, there are too many missteps early on, it throws the whole thing off and you're performing to silence for the next 45 minutes and you're like, why the fuck did I fucking say that thing up top or whatever? Um, there's definitely a few of those where it's plunged into awkward silences that I don't enjoy. And sometimes if someone isn't enjoying it, I have got annoyed. Um, and I think at times I've like, I've tried to sort of frame those impulses Again, it's like taking those impulses and building them into the act. It's like, well, I would have a go at the audience right now for this, or I would have a go at this person for frowning at me. And the you know the impulse is there. The impulse is real. I'm I'm seeing it and I'm affronted by it, or I'm you know in some way rattled by it. How I deal with it varies. Um, sometimes it's in a funny way. Sometimes it's genuinely like I've definitely made mistakes in the past where I've come in too hard at people. Um, but I don't really mind that. I don't really mind the silences. I think I think there's a certain control in that. There's a certain control in in just letting things hang, and letting people just sit with it. You know, it's an experience. You're, you're not meant to be totally at ease the whole time. If you want to feel comfortable, if you want to have a comfortable evening, like make a hot water bottle and get an early night. Don't come and see me perform. <laughs> That question was Matt Smith. Thank you, Matt. This is from Richard Fogarty. When miming making out with a cat, did he have a particular real-life cat in mind that he used for inspiration? Yeah, my cat Lucy. Um, she's beautiful. She's a good girl. She's a good girl. Um, yeah, it came from... Um, which is where all my <laughs> most of my bits come from, which is me trying to um, entertain someone I'm seeing. Um, and I was acting out a scenario where I would seduce my, my own cat. And then, and it was funny enough, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's, I've got to put that <laughs> sure. in. But it was one of those things, actually, to sort of come back to what you were talking about earlier about um, me being uncomfortable with certain bits or putting stuff in that makes me feel uncomfortable. That's definitely a bit that was in the first show that I didn't even really like necessarily. But for that reason, it felt like, oh, well, put it in, keep it in, be uncomfortable with them, you know. Be like, oh, I also don't like this, and I'm sorry I'm doing it. But there's a part of me, an unknown part of me, that is compelling me to do it, and I apologise. And it was a way of making it. If you're like, you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm miming getting off with a cat, and I'm really enjoying it, and I'm enjoying the audience's discomfort, that's less interesting than if I'm looking at them like, why am I doing this? And I'm so sorry. We're all in it together. Um, we're all a victim of my awful impulse. Uh, so yeah, that, that stuff sort of stays in because it's kind of funny, I guess. <laughs> but it's that's just a like... great answer. I'm really glad we got to that. That because that's you know those must be the bits I think that lots of people watching you find hardest to imagine what it would be like to be doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. so. So actually, the fact of that it is it absolutely is more interesting seeing you have a genuine problem with it. Presumably, there's the danger there of that being a kind of an endless series of sort of rabbit holes to you when you're directing or planning your show. That you're thinking, oh well, if I hate this bit, maybe that's good. <laughs> Should have yeah, been like, yeah, if yeah. I think this bit isn't good enough for the show, maybe that's good. <laughs> you know, does that like there is the danger? Is there a danger there that you lose your way with it and you kind of lose your your authorial voice? Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely what I've got. Nothing was a bit of was me going. This is it, really. This is what you. This is what you like. This is this is this is good enough for you. Because there were bits in there that I wouldn't I wouldn't have carried on with if people hadn't laughed at or you know. Um, but again, that's just fascinating to me. That's just fascinating. And to lose your... And I guess this is something that I sort of learned from, like, you know, like uh, being interested in kind of like clowning and, and the more physical side of it and the more playing with atmosphere. 
to relinquish your control over the audience and kind of go, I'm I'm just a human being. I, I'm not in control here. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not the authoritative voice here is really interesting. And once you sort of let go of why the audience finds you funny, there's something very freeing about that. I think comedy is is very, you know, the idea or the, the sort of very old stale idea of stand-up is that it's very, it's very us versus them. It's performer versus audience. And you're constantly trying to, you're constantly doing crowd control. You're constantly trying to re reassert your funniness and, you know, uh, and your, your right to be, to be the loudest voice in the room. But if you go on stage and go, no, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's just, I just, it's just more interesting to me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. So that was Jordan. Do not miss out on those extras. 35 minutes of extra stuff at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, as well as access to all of the insiders content, all of the extra bits from every episode that has it, which is over 100 hours now, I think. So certainly worth your money. Um, and uh, also do not miss out uh, on going to jordanbrookscomedy.com and downloading I've Got Nothing and Bleed. I've not done the download version of Bleed and I don't know what it, I don't know how it's designed with the sort of unique headphones element, but you should find out and you should definitely uh, buy it and support him because he's excellent. So that is all for now. Um, thanks once again to Jordan, to Rob Smouten for the music. The logging was by Jake Crossland. Your podcast consultant is Peter Dobbing and Nathan Wood uh, edited this episode and uploaded it and produced it and did like everything else. Um, loads more great interviews coming up soon. It's a pleasure to be back. I will post amble at you about that in just a moment. But for now, that concludes the podcast. So um, this is take two of an attempt at a post but It's been a while and I am rusty. Um, and also I ended up sort of whiffling about therapy, which no one needs to hear at the moment. Let's just find out about you. And I hope you've had a good Christmas and a good break and a good January. It's February the 1st as I'm recording this and I am phenomenally glad to see the back of January. I'm doing lots of things. I'm also doing more homeschooling and more parenting. I'm parenting Future Girl while uh, Boutros gets his homeschooling done. And he, oh, I can shout out about this because you don't know him personally. He recently got a little award. He got a mention in Zoom Assembly um, for being, amongst other things, bright and resilient and chipper and uh, and working really hard. So I'm uh, I'm really thrilled with him for that. That's good. Christmas was itself. I can't, you know, I can't sort of unreview the the last six weeks now. But I will say this. Last Saturday, two days ago, I hit a wall. Do you remember? Do you remember in March last year when uh, it all kicked off? And I think I released an episode of this uh, podcast, which was like a special episode about resilience and trying to convince you that you are able to cope and you can cope. And I'm pleased to have been bouncy and positive for the large part of the last year. But uh, Saturday, I hit a fucking wall. And uh, I just, just all my, all my mirth left me and um, I became rather mirthless. I became rather miserable. And I just suddenly had one of those moments. I think everyone's had one of these recently um, or, or continually. Just a moment of thinking, just sod this. I think, I don't know, it could have been a couple of things that contributed to it. One was seeing some... Uh, photos of people at a festival in Perth, I think, having, you know, doing wonderful comedy at a festival and going, oh, yeah, that's happening somewhere. Or or like a, some gig with 7,000 people outdoors in New Zealand. There we go. That's an island. They they locked down swiftly and effectively. And there we are. 
Um, and it, it's just kind of just losing, uh, not the will to live, <laughs> the losing will in general. It's tough, isn't it? So I suppose I'm just recording this to remind you as mu- remind me as much as you. It's a note to self. Um, that uh, God, it's continuing to be hard. It's shitty weather, and and certainly in the UK where I'm recording this, it's just. I've had days and days and days of rain. We had one snow day, one miraculous snow morning, and the just seeing the world afresh, seeing the world differently, and going. It gave me. I mean, if anything, probably what I had on Saturday was the crash that resulted in the previous Sunday. I think it was the previous Sunday's beautiful snow and the possibility of, of difference and like, God, imagine if it wasn't the same four walls over and over again. Um, so I don't know. Is that positive? <laughs> Let's try to stay positive. Let's all, I tell you what, mate, if it wasn't for the regular little bits of exercise I've been doing, I'd I'd be absolutely all over the place by now. Um, so let's all continue to cultivate little micro habits that save our lives. So let's all try to continue to cultivate little micro habits that will go on to save our lives. And tell you what, uh, here's a little bit of therapy I can share with you. Uh, I found myself earlier on expressing this sentiment. Part of me keeps kicking myself for not learning Spanish during lockdown or Mandarin or some fucking thing. Do you know what I mean? Like having a tangible, oh, it's a really tangible thing. Shout out to the comedian who will remain nameless uh, because I haven't checked this with them, but who's just started at uh, a school for electricians. I've got to continue to be completely impressed by uh, comics being uh, flexible and going, well, the circuit's been tough for a bit. That's a thing. Let's stay with this. Last year, in April, people were getting on comedy Facebook, comedians' private Facebook groups and saying, you know, has anyone got any ideas for short-term work? And this year, January, that was one of the things that helped break me, was seeing the amount of people getting on those same groups and saying, has anyone got any ideas for career changes? Because, you know, it is all coming back. Of course it is. And no one's going to get any less good at it. But, you know, people who've put 15 years into it aren't going to suddenly lose the ability. But it will be a while until the circuit in this country returns. Of course it will. So I continue to be completely blown away by by the, the kind of grit and determination of everyone being flexible and going, right, dig in, learn something else, do something else. All of that stuff uh, is, is is really impressing me. So well done, everyone, doing that. Um, and I suppose, what am I saying Let's all, that's it, micro habits. I keep thinking of, I keep thinking I should learn Spanish, but here's a habit I should be building up. I I should be practicing little micro habits of compassion and little micro habits of self-compassion and stop having such a fucking go at myself. In short form, I've been made aware through this therapy recently of the absolute vastness, the the colossal sort of architecture of how badly I can treat myself sometimes. Andrew O'Neill on Facebook posted something similar. (laughs) Artists, stop giving yourself a hard time. And it was in a similar sort of vein. But what's been really reverberating throughout my mind for the last couple of weeks is just finally realising, being aware of just how fucking hard a time I can give myself when I don't deserve it. And I think the conversation I I can share this because this wasn't a therapy thing. This is a conversation with a human being thing, recognizing that our beliefs and our values are often different. And that specifically in my case, my beliefs and my values have been 
contra what's the word uh, contradictory against <laughs> they've been against each other my values are help be kind help people make people happy make them laugh those kind of things values my beliefs are if you don't do those things well enough you're a piece of shit goldsmith do you know what i mean just recognizing like the difference between those two qualities have a little chat with yourself if any of this resonates I would suggest that a great number of your values are positive. I would suggest you might want to keep an eye on your beliefs in case they are less positive because I am unraveling loads of stuff at the moment and I won't go into any more detail than that. But this is definitely a time to be kind to yourself. So whether you are putting three juggling balls by the kettle and every time you make a cup of tea or teaching yourself to juggle, it's the best way to learn. Whether you're using that as a parallel and just putting little habits of exercise. I'm learning how to do a handstand. I'm just spending a couple of minutes every day practicing a handstand. Whether it's little things like that or whether the little micro habits that you're that you are investing in yourself with now in order to at the end of this thing, when everything is genuinely back to normal, you go, oh, by the way, I learned this in lockdown. Well, let's also incorporate in that package or let's make the sole focus, whatever, the idea of having compassion for yourself. It is tough at the minute and you're doing great. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.